I love the way the New Living Translation of the Bible renders the opening verse of Luke chapter 15. It reads as follows. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Sort of sounds like worship at Christ Church, doesn't it? Only one of the notorious sinners is up here teaching instead of Jesus. This is the wonder of the church of Jesus Christ. The, the amazing wonder of the institution or organism we know as the church of Jesus is that we are not an association of perfect people or even people who pretend to be even close to perfect. We are a recovery movement. We are a gathering, a club of notorious sinners, so to speak, who are finding the grace and truth of God meeting us where we are and transforming our lives progressively towards His image and likeness. The question I want to ask you today is, why is it so hard for so many people to get this about the nature of the church? Why do some of us within the church still struggle to be authentic with one another about our flaws and our foibles, our struggles, our doubts, our difficulties, as if there was not enough love here to accept us as we are and enough love here to empower and help us to become who we yet can be? Why is it that an increasing number of people in our society around about us regard Christians as haters instead of helpers? What is going on here? The answer, I suspect, has something to do with our difficulty in really understanding the heart of God that informs and shapes the life of the church, the body of Christ. To put it very succinctly, we have a very difficult time remembering that we follow a God of relationship and not a God of religion. We follow a God who is far more concerned with love than with law. And even where God is concerned with law, and he is, he, he's laid out a, a magnificent matrix of, of guidelines and principles and practices for human life. Those that that law is fundamentally designed uh, to, to lead us into the most abundant and eternal quality of life. And it's motivated, this law giving is motivated by his love for us. The Bible makes it clear that imperfect people regularly gathered around Jesus. In fact, this was one of the most distinctive elements of the ministry of Jesus as over and against the ministry of other religious leaders of, of, of any age. That imperfect people felt like they could come into the presence of this holy man. But Luke chapter 15 and verse 2 tells us that this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even, even eating with them, the text says. In other words, within the orbit of Jesus were not only honest rebels, okay, those, one, those, those particular notorious sinners 
who, who were regarded as notorious by religious people, but also there were hard-hearted religionists always around the outside, watching, listening, checking up on Jesus, criticizing the ministry of Jesus, who still did not see that they too were notorious sinners, desperately in need of God's salvation. And so to make the point that all of us need to be found by God, and let me just back up one moment and say, we cannot be useful to God in reaching this world He so loves until we have confessed the reality of how much our own sin still cripples us, how much we still need God's grace, We cannot be useful for his purposes until we come to that place of profound humility by which we then offer to others the hope of the gospel like beggars telling other beggars where to find food. Without that fundamental conversion of awareness of our need of grace, we cannot fulfill his purposes. And so to drive both the rebellious kind of sinner and the religious kind of sinner Into the arms of God, Jesus goes on to tell three uh, particular stories. uh, A string of illuminating stories, each of which has four parallel plot elements worth noting. I only read a moment ago uh, the first of those stories. I want to trace the contours of the other ones for you as well today. Now, the first story that Jesus tells is about a man who owns a hundred sheep. The second story he tells is about a woman who has 10 silver coins. And the third story Jesus recounts is of a father who has two sons, 100, 10, and 2. Now, in each of the stories, through no apparent fault of the owner, one of the possessions goes missing. That's the first common element in, in the thread of each of these stories. A sheep wanders off in the first story, obviously out of stupidity. If you don't know that sheep are not particularly bright animals, let me tell you. I worked for two springtimes on a sheep and dairy farm in the northwest corner of Ireland. Sheep do not have high SAT scores. Let me just put it like that. They will not come in out of the rain, even if the pen is sitting right there with a nice roof on it. They will just stand there until somebody leads them along. And so a sheep wanders off, obviously out of stupidity. Then a coin in the second story rolls away, perhaps the result of blind gravity. And then in the third story, a a son splits off from his family, clearly, if you know the story of the prodigal son, out of selfish depravity. Now, I love this because the three stories display the brainless choices the blind circumstances, and the bad character that defines a lot of life. Jesus has summed up in these three little stories pretty much the way life works. This is what vexes and causes the challenges for us, right? These brainless choices, these blind circumstances that happen to us, and the bad character that, that causes trouble for us or, or, or others through us. So the first element, again, is that there's a possession and it's gone missing through no fault of the owner. The second common element in these stories is the response of those listening to the stories. Now, we weren't there. 
And we live in the 21st century rather than the 1st century and have a whole different cultural lens through which we tend to view life. And Jesus does not supply, or the Bible does not supply for us, the, um, the soundtrack of the response of those who were listening to Jesus. But I promise you, there would have been a soundtrack. You would have heard audible responses to, to, to the stories that Jesus was telling. Because Jesus is telling provocative stories here, as I'll make clearer in a moment. The conventional response to each one of these losses that Jesus describes of these possessions would have been, in that time, who cares? So what? It serves the dumb sheep right if he's wolf bait. You know, who cares? You still got 99. You are not going to leave the 99 to worry about this one, uh, you know, mutton dinner for some wolf out there. Because frankly, these other ones are going to produce more sheep for you any minute. If you know anything about sheep, you know that's true. To the woman in the story, the second story, they would have said, don't bother with the missing coin. You know, it's going to turn up. Houses are not very large. They didn't have tons of furniture. If, if it's rolled away someplace, you're going to find it tomorrow. Uh, don't worry about it. You still got nine silver coins. That's a fortune in first century terms. And to the father, they would have shouted out, let the kids starve. Okay? He, he, he abused you, the patriarch of the family. He's a loser. He's exactly the kind of kid you want out of the family and in as far a country as you can get him. And if he ever comes back again, stone the kid. He's bad for community, ethics, and mores. The conventional response to each of the losses would have been, who cares? It is, however, the third element of the story on which the teaching of Jesus turns. Jesus is trying to produce the who cares response from people by telling the stories as he does. Because then the stories go on to say that apparently the main character in each tale actually cares a lot. Mysteriously cares a great deal. Leaving the other 99 in the open country, the first of the tales say, the shepherd ventures off. He leaves the, the flock and he goes out into what is implicitly not open country. It's the more tangled countryside. It's the more dangerous part of the country. And he searches high and low until he locates that one missing lamp, that one stupid lamp. And then in the second story, lighting a lamp. And grabbing a broom. In other words, she, why does she light the lamp? Because it's dark. And it's going to be hard work to find it at this hour. And she's not waiting until tomorrow morning. She's lighting the lamp now and grabbing a broom. The woman goes all over the house, sweeping and searching and fishing under things. And you can imagine her, you know, dropping to her knees and going cheek down right on the grimy floor, reaching under the furniture, desperate to find that lost coin until she finds it. And then in the third story, seeing his boy while he is still a long way off. How do you see something when it's still a long way off? 
Because you've been searching for it. Because you've been scanning the horizon for it. The father forgets his past injury and insult. He ignores his dignity. He hikes up his robes. And he goes running out to meet that criminally errant son of his. And then finally, this is the fourth element in each of the stories, a great party ensues. We're told the shepherd calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And the woman in the second story gathers around all of her associates and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And the father in the last tale cries out to his servants, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. And in each case, a celebration breaks out that seems utterly out of proportion to the apparent value of the item found. And the people listening to the story are going, huh? Huh? Why these people get so excited about finding the thing in the first place? And how in the world do they then go berserk with joy when it turns up again? I don't get it. Why so excited over the reclamation of a stupid sheep, an ordinary coin, and a lousy son? That Jesus anticipates this particular response is evident from the fourth story he then goes on to tell. And we didn't read this one aloud, but you'll find it at the close of Luke chapter 15. Jesus describes the reaction of the elder son of the father who lost the younger son to the far country. And, and in this story is actually externalizing what's in the heart of most of the people listening to him, especially, especially the religious people there. The, the reaction of the elder son to the news that his dad is throwing a party for his wayward brother is this. I quote, all these years, all these years, I have been slaving, <laughs> slaving for you. And you never, and I never disobeyed your orders. Not, not, not once. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so, so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for it. You know, you, you put out this incredible effort to celebrate him. And this elder son is speaking for a lot of us. Because frankly, God's grace doesn't make a whole lot of sense from the vantage point of religion. Religion says that it's the people who, who appear to do the right things who matter to God. These are the people that ought to be celebrated. It's the ones who stay in the fold. 
It's the ones who have the, the, the sterling reputation, who stay in the purse, who don't stray away from home. These are the ones who are the valuable ones. It's the people who faithfully frequent the church. It's the ones whose rule-keeping seems so steady, who do not upset the family order in any way. They're the ones who ought to be God's focus. I know that. I'm an oldest brother of six kids. It used to bug the heck out of me. That I'm there doing, keeping my room clean and doing things right and bringing home the grades. And my parents are all excited when the, the one brother whose room is a disaster suddenly decides to clean up a little corner of it. And they're just, they're just jumping. And I'm going, huh? Huh? What about me? What about me? But that point of view, as common as it is, only reminds us that lostness can take a variety of forms. I want you to think again about what the elder brother says in Luke chapter 15, because it's very revealing. The fact that the elder brother sees himself as slaving for the father instead of serving him displays that he does not have such a loving relationship with his dad, doesn't it? He thinks of himself as a slave, not as a son or even a servant. Uh, There's something broken in his sense of connection with his dad. The fact that he resents not being given even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends, he says shows that he doesn't value very much the far greater privilege of being able to dine every day with his dad who won't be there forever, you know, who will soon enough be gone. And the fact that he sees the wayward boy as, quote, this son of yours instead of as what? This brother of mine suggests that after all of these years, of living under the Father's care, he still doesn't get what it means to be family. Right? He has not absorbed it somehow after all of this time. As Pastor Tim Keller of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York has said, the younger sons among us are often separated from our Heavenly Father, from God, by our selfishness. We're rebels, right? We just, we're going to go our own way, do our own thing, be our own God, we don't want, care for any of the rules uh, and the guidelines of, of our Father in heaven. But the elder sons among us are equally separated often by our self-righteousness, by our impression that we're so good. Um, and both of these kinds of people, says Keller, are living outside of a proper relationship with God. Uh, each of them is in need of salvation, of being brought home to the heart of the Father. Thankfully, there is a Savior. There is a Savior who can bring us home. And in the stories that he tells, and these are just a few of them, in the way that he lives his life, and actually even in the process of dying from this life, in his great commission to us to go out into all the world and bring other people into the life of the family, Jesus is displaying the relentlessly pursuing heart of God for notorious sinners of many kinds, right? He's just showing us how desperately in love with people, uh, religious and rebellious alike, 
that God is. The God of relationship has one great mission, said Jesus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, in the lectionary readings that we had for this week, we are challenged to think about this. In Psalm 51, for example, which is a psalm penned by King David of Israel, David, who is, as you know, a notorious sinner himself, confesses that he was lost in rebellion, right? He made his own rules. He had adultery with Bathsheba. When she was, became pregnant through the affair, he arranged for the, for the killing of uh, her husband so he could try and cover up and not deal with the implications of this scandal. Uh, and, and David confesses that he, that he was just lost in rebellion and has needed to turn his whole heart around and head back towards God again. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, another notorious sinner named Paul confesses that he was lost in religion. And indeed he was, as you know his story. Uh, as, uh, when he was known by the name Saul, uh, he was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians uh, because he was so self-righteous that he was convinced there could be no truth and no good in this way of the cult of the Nazarene, that he actually killed Christians. Both of these guys are soberly aware that God could have very righteously judged them and condemned them and disposed of them for their sin. And and, and in Exodus 32, the other passage that we studied for this week, another notorious sinner, a man by the name of Moses, confronts the part of God that could well exercise his wrath when we rebel against his grace or when we turn to an empty religion. But in all four courses of the lectionary menu for this week, there's one large message that we're supposed to take in until it changes us, until it alters our heart in in demonstrable ways. And and I want to talk about that message in concluding today by sharing with you one final story. In his book, Bold Love, author Max Lucado tells the tale of Christina, a young Brazilian girl who yearned to experience life beyond her little village. Christina had nothing but a very thin fabric pallet that she would sleep on in the tiny mud hut in which she had grown up. And she dreamed of a better life She believed that better life could be found in the big city. And so Christina, haunted by a sense of discontentment, finally one day decided to get up and leave the village and go to the big city. And off she went. Upon discovering that her daughter was gone, her mother, Maria, was distraught beyond description. And uh, just tearing her hair out with worry, Maria decides, I've got to go after her. And so gathering up what little material resource she has, Maria makes her way down to the bus station in the the nearest town, and, and on the way stops into a little store that has one of those machines where they make photographs. And using as much of her uh, cash as she can spare, she, she, she purchases um, as many passport size pictures of herself as she can 
and then she boards the bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knows her daughter's heart pretty well. She knows that Christina is strong, but very proud and extremely stubborn, and that when her stubbornness, her pride met hunger, it was much more likely that Christina would do unthinkable things, things that would have been previously unimaginable to her living back in the village just to survive rather than coming back and facing what she would fear would be the shame of admitting she was wrong and shouldn't have gone away in the first place. And so Maria's mind ran to all the horrible outcomes of the choices that Christina might make. And so she made the decision to start visiting uh, the casinos and the hotels and and the the sleazy bars, all the places where prostitutes and streetwalkers might end up hanging out in case that is what Christina had had to finally turn to to survive. And so as she went to each of these places, Maria would leave behind one of these small photos. She would tape it onto a bathroom mirror. She would tack it onto a hotel bulletin board. She would uh, affix it to a lamp post. She went about the city just leaving behind these little photographs of herself. And on the back of each small square of paper, she'd write this little note down, this, this note. Finally, her, her money and her pictures ran out. And, and Maria boarded the bus again back to the village. She wept with grief and hope all the way back to that village. Some weeks later, young Christina descended the stairs of a seedy hotel. As Max Lucado puts it, her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade countless beds for that secure little pallet in the hut at home. And yet the little village was in her mind in too many ways, just too far away ever to go home. As she bottomed this particular staircase, however, Christina's tired eyes lit upon something that was taped to the mirror across the way in the hotel lobby. And for some reason, was drawn to it. And as she began to approach the mirror, the girl's throat tightened up as she saw that it was a dog-eared photo of a familiar face. And as she slowly walked over and removed the picture, she held it in her hands, turned it over, and found that there was something written on the back of her mother's picture. And these were the words of simple invitation she read. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Please come home. And Christina did. The question I want to pose in closing today is have you, have you come home? Have you heard the invitation 
and really answered it in the depths of your soul and found your place in the heart of your heavenly parent. You see, Jesus shows us the wonder that Moses and David and Paul and a whole lot of other people before us have discovered as well. Jesus shows us that the God of this universe is not like religion tells us. (laughs) He's not some celestial Scrooge on the balcony of heaven just looking for some reason to toss us out, to stamp us out like we're some kind of spiritual forest fire. Right? The God of heaven that Jesus shows us is the one who will cross the open country and hack his way through whatever thicket exists there and expose himself to injury just to find you. The God Jesus shows us will stoop down from the heights of eternity and get down on his knees and go cheek down to the grimy ground of this earth and search around underneath the furniture to find you. The God Jesus shows us will scan the horizon every single moment of every single day and go outside if necessary to run and close the distance between you and anybody else lost in rebellion. The God Jesus shows us is one who will leave a party filled with eternal angels and go outside into the darkness to draw back to his heart anybody who's lost in religion. So whatever you have done and whatever you have become, it doesn't matter anywhere near as much to Him as what you can become with His grace and truth, His love working in your life. The message that Jesus extends the invitation I proclaim in his name to you is notorious sinner, beloved child, please come home. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that within the sound of of your voice speaking through these stories today that there are some notorious sinners who know, who feel in a fresh way today how lost they've been. Whether in rebellion or in religion, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, have stirred something in their heart and that you have turned them in some critical way toward home. Lord, help that person to come home this very day. To to, to dare to, to repent of the direction they've been going in. To confess their desperate need for you. And to walk in your direction today. Lord, thank you. 
that you have been searching, waiting, longing, looking for this person. Grant them today a sense of amazed joy. That your arms are wide open. That there is a place of honor and hope and new life in your home for them. And so bring each one of these precious ones, I pray, home to you. For we pray this together in the name of Jesus. And the children of the Heavenly Father said, Amen.